Steve King loves drinking toilet water, Joni Ernst wants to lock Iowans out, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette has a terrific new columnist. What a week. I'm Matt Sinovic, the Executive Director of Progress Iowa. And I'm Lauren McElmeel, the Digital Director for Progress Iowa. And this is What a Week, where we break down the the top stories of the week, and we're going to jump right in um, uh, to to what has been one of the most ridiculous, and that is saying something, uh, stories about Congressman Steve King, who uh, reportedly had gone down to the border to to check to check in on the conditions that uh, uh, that, that that immigrants are are facing due to President Trump's. Um, Pretty much concentration camps that they're holding these these immigrants in, um, and asylum seekers. And this week at a town hall, Steve King was talking about his um, uh, that the, the conditions weren't that bad, and in fact, even though there were reports of of people being forced to drink uh, toilet water, that he drank toilet water, and it wasn't that bad. Um, I, we're gonna. I, this is a very serious topic, but I want to. Steve King is just the absolute worst human being, and and so I have to bring some levity to it and and ask Lauren, like, what is the worst place that you've ever taken a drink of water? I don't even know. <laughs> I. I mean, I suppose I don't think of this that much, but I mean. I generally try to drink water from the tap and not drink water from odd sources like open fountains on the backs of toilets. Yeah, I mean, I think that there was a few years ago when um, when Steve King was comparing immigrants to dogs, oh. and it was the I don't know if you remember this, but there, there was the uh, it was the we should pick the best breeds. And that's the only I'm paraphrasing and not getting it exactly right. But it was that we needed to have the pick of the litter for our for the immigrants that were coming across the border. Because God knows Steve King is the pick of the litter. Of course. Right. And uh, that plucked (laughs) owl. um, But (laughs) but it just and I I don't I, I thought of that. And of course, the litany of of awful things that he has said while he's been in office. Um, but I, I specifically thought of that, and and because of dogs drinking out of out of a toilet bowl. And I think that that is just it is the it is the most demeaning and dehumanizing language that he continues to use when talking about immigrants. That he I don't know that he views immigrants as human beings like I, oh, I, I no and, oh, no he doesn't and I think that that is and there's all kinds of research and information out there about how dehumanizing language turns into dehumanizing and and racist policy and beliefs and and violence. and violence and and so I think that that drawing a line through some of his past comments to this one is is important um and so I, I also wanted to ask you what you think. I mean, we keep th- this could be a weekly recurring segment on this sh- on this podcast. I mean, about the, the, the latest offensive, horrible thing that Steve King has said. But what do you have? We hit rock bottom here drinking toilet water or, or is there a rock bottom for Steve King? 
I mean, everything. I every time I think we hit rock bottom with Steve King, we seem to find a new sub basement. And <laughs> I mean, this this isn't even just about like him basically risking like getting E. coli or something to prove a point that like, oh, it's not that bad when drinking water should be. We may have to like post a photo or something of the like the toilet he's he's drinking out of because it's a drinking fountain that's built into a toilet with no lid or anything to to keep like I don't want to say fecal matter on this podcast, but I guess I have to yeah. to keep those sort of bacteria and things from reaching drinking water. And I'm sure that someone thought it was a great design to like put the water all together and not have to build separate things. But if I'm remembering correctly, you're supposed to like, even if you have like your toothbrush less than like three feet from a toilet and dentists or scientists say like that's too close you're gonna get e coli or get all sorts of bacteria on your toothbrush so making people's only sources of drinking water be that close to like a toilet is gross and disgraceful and it also comes down to like alexandria ocasio-cortez and the women of color Congress people who have visited these places have given their sworn testimony under oath that they talked to these women in these camps. And this is not, I don't think any of these people would take sworn testimony lightly and lie. And saying that he doesn't believe what they said, uh, number one, just shows he didn't do the reading, which I'm not surprised because he doesn't seem like a person who would do the reading. But also just like the constant undermining of women and people of color that comes from Steve King is just, like you said, the latest thread Mm -hmm. that all comes together in every one of his actions. And what AOC and some of these other members of Congress said was that they actually had, that the the water fountains were broken, right? And that they they weren't drinking out of the, we will post a picture or the the video that, that they shared so that you can, if you haven't seen it already, you can see, people can see what, uh, what Steve King was doing at the border, drinking out of the water fountain, like Lauren said, on the back of the the toilet. But but apparently, in a lot of the in some of the cases, the that water fountain was broken, so they were told to to drink. I believe they were told to drink out of the toilet bowl itself. Is uh, that right? Alexandria Ocasio Cortez posted a, a tweet in response to this that the, uh, quote: "This was in fact the type of toilet we saw in the cell, except there was just one, and the sink portion was not functioning." Yeah. Representative Ayanna Presley smartly tried to open the faucet, and nothing came out. So the women were told they could drink out of the bowl. Yeah, I, and so even if, even in the best case scenario, which is what Steve King got to do which was which drinking, is equally which gross. is which is disgusting and unsanitary itself but that's not what what was the the circumstance or the situation no, for it's a far more demeaning yeah situation like literally drinking out of the toilet bowl um and this is this is something that will unfortunately i think continue um, until we get a new administration, but there needs to be oversight of this. I'm glad that there are members of Congress who are digging into this. Um, I, I wonder, though, do you? 
that there was i don't know if the two are related but there was an endorsement this steve king does have a primary this time uh there's a republican primary um from randy feenstra um that that people are taking very seriously um and and this this week uh, a state senator from fort dodge republican tim crimebrink endorsed Feenstra, King's primary opponent. Do we think that that's going to matter? Do we think this that this moment, among others, will lead to King losing that primary? I mean, Cryan Brink's whole endorsement was based on like Randy Feenstra delivers conservative uh, results, which also the term "deliver" is such an insider term, and. In in knock down the house, AOC actually says it like you know the term deliver means pork and like what can you get for your district that's like gonna sweeten the pot. Uh, but then Crimebrink went on to say that he delivered Iowa's largest tax cut, and he being Feenstra, which is also just a load of baloney, and these the I don't I mean I don't know how much endorsements really make or break a primary because I don't know how many, I don't know how many people are going to be like, oh, Tim Cryenbrink endorsed uh, Randy Feenstra. I'm going to go ahead and vote for Randy Feenstra then. I think endorsements maybe like if the governor came out and said something about wanting Steve King out of office, which I highly doubt is going to happen. Well, maybe I I would be I'd be shocked. I mean, that was her. Craig is shaking his that, head. That was, that, he was. He was. He was her campaign co-chair last year, yeah. and and she rightly, Reynolds, Governor Reynolds, rightly got a lot of of uh, uh, blowback from that as King continued to say one racist thing after another, as you know, we've established that he does, and and she never backed away from him, even when her political. Uh, life was on the line, and so this year, I don't, I don't know why she would. Uh, I don't know why she would now. And I mean, I, I wonder how the angle of that Feenstra has quote unquote delivered for Iowans, whereas Steve King has been continually recognized as the least effective member mm-hmm. of Congress. Yeah, I think like one post office one post renamed office in his been, yeah, however many years in office. Yeah, and that's about it. Yeah, that's about it, and so. I don't know. Maybe that doesn't matter to the people who live in the 4th District. I mean, I would like to think that Congressman Cindy Cindy Axney, can you change that? Congresswoman Cindy Axney is my representative, and I generally feel like she's doing at least doing stuff for the district, doing stuff for Iowans in, in ways that Steve King is not. And maybe that's just my personal preference. I think it's an understatement. Yeah. But yeah. That I want someone who represents me to do do things that, you know, represent me in government. Yeah. So I guess the, the bottom line is I don't know. I agree. I don't know that this is that it will um, that his endorse that, that Senator Crime brings endorsement will necessarily matter a whole lot. I do wonder if these continue to happen. As they probably as these statements from King will continue to happen as they certainly will because he can't help himself. Feenster has gained a couple of of uh, endorsements from Iowa Republicans. Mm-hmm. Do you have to wonder if all that is going to if they continue to add up 
if that reaches some sort of critical mass where, like you were saying, this one endorsement, does anyone really, will that really matter in the whole grand scheme of things? I would agree that probably, you know, in the wash, does one state senator make a difference? Probably not. But does it matter if a dozen, 20, 30 more established Republicans come out for Feenster as opposed to King, maybe, you know, I think at that point, maybe. Um, and I think if someone like the governor, like Joni Ernst, yeah, like, like a bigger name. Chuck Grassley, a bigger name, because Tim Kreinbrink is not a big name. And right. I'm, I don't feel bad saying that because <laughs> we didn't know how to pronounce his name about 10 minutes ago. Um, yeah. So I think, I think a bigger name would maybe tip the scales i mean but the the idea of endorsements is always kind of a a weird wishy-washy space yeah i do think and and we this is probably a topic for another episode um that we should die that we should really dig deep into um to hit King's voting record and what Feenstra's record has been in the legislature. You mentioned it a little bit before, but I think a bigger question for voters is going to be if Feenstra were to win the primary and then, and, and, and let's say he wins and, and becomes the member of Congress, which, uh, you know, is still a long way away, but what would be the difference in their votes? Probably nothing. Right. Feenstra just says it doesn't say the quiet parts out loud. Yeah. So I think so. I and I do. I do think that's we should we should um, dig into that and and look at their voting records and see if there would be any real difference there because I think that's that's interesting uh, uh, because as embarrassing and as uh, um, and and sort of disgusting as many of the things that King says. You know, as many things that he says are like his his record. I mean, him and David Young, who was in office at the same time, their voting record you couldn't distinguish the two really. And David Young was known as being this super nice guy. Um, uh, so, I think we'll we'll have to wait and see on the primary situation. But but I do we but we will plan on uh, analyzing that their voting records on an upcoming episode. Joni Ernst, in a town hall in Esterville, talked about how the way to fix Social Security and ensure its solvency is to fix it behind closed doors, away from the scrutiny of the public, of various advocacy groups. And I mean, I don't know who said this originally, but there's an aphorism that goes, if you're not at the table, then you're on the menu. And this is generally what I think this sounds like from Joni Ernst. And we're going to play the audio for you from her town hall. So take a listen. So uh, it brings the larger point, though, of how do we sustain Social Security for some of our younger workers? We know that there is a point in time when we as Congress will have to address the situation. And I think it's better done sooner rather than later uh, to make sure that we've shored up that system. So it's you know a broader discussion for another day, but I do think as uh, various parties and members of Congress, we need to sit down behind closed doors so we're not being scrutinized by this group or the other and just have a, an open and honest conversation about what are some of the, the ideas that we have for uh, 
maintaining Social Security in the future. So a lot of different ideas and a lot of different thoughts, but I, I will tell you that there are very few members of Congress that even want to broach the subject because it becomes so controversial. The minute you say we need to address Social Security, man, the media is hammering you, the opposing party will hammer you, there goes Granny over a cliff, uh, but there is a real issue out there. And as long as we are being hammered as members of Congress for even saying we need to do something about it, you're not gonna find people that are willing to step forward and do it. So we, we do need to address the situation. We do need to make sure that those that actually do need um, that method of payment, that they are able to survive you know, on that Social Security. And so a lot of changes need to be made in the system going forward. Uh, so I would encourage members of Congress, if you want to sit down, I'm happy to sit down and, and start discussing it. I think it's smart that we do that now rather than wait until the very last minute when we have folks that are actually in jeopardy. So uh, thank you. Uh, point taken. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll hope to address it in the near future. Thanks, John. I find it interesting that in between saying that she doesn't want to be scrutinized by this group or another, but she wants to have an open and honest conversation behind those closed doors. Yeah, if you have to, you said it well, like, if you have to do this in private, like, who, what are you, what are you hiding? I mean... And what are you trading away? Yeah, <laughs> and, I mean, there's no excuse to do this in private. I mean, she, Senator Ernst, more or less won in 2014 by, by having her campaign and the media to use her words hammer away at a statement made behind closed doors by congressman bruce braley and 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 just just literally ha like just hammering away at him for that and and so for her to turn around and do this she has to know that there's going to be political consequences for this because it's just the wrong thing to do um i mean when she talks about that there goes granny off the cliff and there goes i mean all those kind of, that imagery that sometimes gets used around this issue she's ignoring the history of why social security exists in the first place i mean this is a this is a social safety net put in place and then as part of the new deal by because, my girl francis perkins that's right um because because Senior citizens in this country, as they're getting older, were literally in poverty and dying. I mean, so that's what we are trying to prevent. We're trying to make sure that everyone can retire and live their life with dignity, even after they're be after they're beyond their their working years. I mean, frankly, we should be able to have a some sort of a pension system that that we you know that we create or some some even stronger form of retirement. But this is what we have, and and so when she talks about, I mean, I wrote this down as we're as we're listening to that. I mean, she doesn't talk about making some changes or even. A few changes. She talks about a lot of changes. Like I wrote down like six O's, a lot of changes. And I feel like those lot of changes are not going to be the kind of changes that we would want, which yeah, would no. expand Social Security. Right. And It's going to be privatizing. Yeah. It's going to be raising the retirement age and, and things that she has talked about before, that she has publicly said, and that, and that her biggest backers have pushed in the past. And 
And so that's that's why that type of imagery and that type of of language gets used when you're talking about um, uh, social security is because people's lives really are on the line or then their quality of life is certainly on the line um, when we're talking about social security. Um, and it's something that uh, that you mentioned as we were listening to it that this is not just a handout. This is a this is something that we all pay into, something that we pay into and that we have a right to when we when we're heading into uh, retirement age. So I, I do want to also note uh, and give a, a shout out to American Bridge, the um, the organization that that um, got the video of this at her town hall um, and and Iowa starting line who covered it. They're, they're reporting and this video has been picked up by a number of national outlets, but that's not possible unless there's somebody on the ground going to these town hall meetings and covering it. I think also the, the imagery with Granny over a cliff has been used by, I mean, by so long we've, we've gotten to be so used to using seniors and the elderly as sort of political footballs that we toss back and forth when we want to point out something. And a lot of it on the right has been about, uh, I don't remember if it was Chuck Grassley who coined the term death panels, but he certainly went went full into that. And yeah. during the, uh, the Affordable Care Act debate. Which was made up. Which was made up, yes. But the... Yeah, the point is they're using that language. Yes. And I mean, I think our seniors definitely deserve much better than that. They're not just political footballs. They're they're people. And I mean, I think especially in the in the framing of Social Security, there are people that have been working for a long time, have paid into that system and deserve to retire with dignity and have that safety net which, I mean, I think we should have a wider safety net so that everyone can sort of have a backup if something goes wrong. But, I mean, starting with Social Security, I think, is an important step. I agree. And I also want to bring up the fact that this is – it should not just be categorized as as an issue for seniors – as an issue for people who are in their, you know, heading into retirement age, because the long-term changes that they're talking about, usually it, when they float these very bad ideas to 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 change Social Security, the raising of the retirement age, the cutting back of benefits, the or changing how they're calculated. Even President Obama put that in one of his budgets, the uh, uh, the chain CPI, which is sort of just changing how they how you. Uh, calculate the cost of inflation, um, and which would be a benefit cut, or be, which would be a you know uh, a payment cut in Social Security. I mean, but most of those changes they usually phase them in over time, and so they don't want to make their own voters angry, right? So that's impacting you know the young younger generations who are already impacted by student loan debt by. Um, by if you're gra- if you graduated in the in the wake of the of the uh, recession of 08 and 09 and and in, and into 10 then your your earnings are already on a decline or already you know uh, um, you're already behind the eight ball as far as your earnings go so yeah, but millennials and Gen Z don't turn out as much as uh, 
as seniors do, right. which is and that's the which is ridiculous because Gen Z and millennials are coming up on being the biggest voting block. And if we could all get to the polls, which you should all get to the polls next year because it's really important. Yeah. Well, I think that's the point. Like, I think that that we should care about our long term financial security, our retirement security, and they are attacking it. I mean, whether it's social security, there's always the IPERS discussion here in, in the state of Iowa. Um, but but I, this, is a, this is not only an issue for people who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s and up. This is, this is an issue for people who are working and planning to retire one day and, and knowing that, that we, ha- we should be able to know that that is out there for us and that as we're paying into social security, there's going to be something at some Thing for us um, at the end of the day, and with the lot with a lot of changes, as as Senator Ernst said, made behind closed doors. I don't. I'm not confident in that, and so I think every single really Iowan needs to know about this. Not confident in my eventual ability to retire at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a common sentiment among you know younger workers. It's just we just don't know, and and I think these kind of statements from Senator Ernst only stoke those fears and when they when someone in her position should do the exact opposite we also want to highlight a great new columnist from the cedar rapids gazette liz lens who had two pieces out recently um, that caught our attention one was talking about how america wasn't made for everyone but it should be and the other i believe was just titled iowa you are racist yes. and and digs into a Which, lot of yeah. um a lot of really troubling things uh really tr- troubling incidents and events in our state um and also the more kind of insidious small things that right. that are part of this structural uh, racism that we don't necessarily think about, but are always informing sort of how our, how our daily lives happen. Yeah. And, and, and Lens is she's a new, new addition to the Gazette as of this summer. And, uh, from what we've seen will be a really welcome voice there. And just for the, for the state in general to have her, uh, putting out columns regularly. Um, but in the piece about, um, I guess for both of these, I wanted to ask you, Lauren, like, are you, after reading these uh, pieces, are you, does it make you, because I mean, she di- she goes into some really dark and not pleasant pieces about our history and, and, and current, you know, what we're doing right now. So do you, but it's, it's all, but it's all framed in a way, like, especially the America piece of that, it, that, that, you know, it wasn't made for everybody, but it should be. Are you more pessimistic or optimistic? How do you look at what she's writing? I mean, number one, I love her writing. And I think this is a very welcome voice in the kind of Iowa media is not terribly diverse, which is something that we need to work on and getting more being more inclusive and getting these voices into these things. And I I'm a big believer in the idea that information is the key to unlocking a lot of uh, prejudices and unlearning the the it maybe that like learning leads to unlearning. And so learning about these incidences and the language that we use that continues to perpetuate this culture of white supremacy and patriarchy and learning how 
to counteract that and how one of the bigger things for me is that she's talking about Iowa through the lens of people who live here and not people who came in here after the election and just talked to white dudes in diners who voted for Trump because they had quote unquote economic anxieties. And by that, I mean, we're, uh, we're not chill with what's happening with, uh, a more diverse and inclusive culture trying to break through this sort of glass ceiling of white supremacy and patriarchy. And so I think having this kind of stuff coming out of Iowa and also being in a big newspaper like the Gazette is an excellent way for people to start taking notice of the fact that Iowa is not some like rosy heartland that has all the answers and is like a shining utopia field of dreams style. I mean, Don't knock the field of dreams. I like but the I agree field with of you. dreams, but that quote is this heaven? No, it's Iowa is needs to is not true. <laughs> because <laughs> for as much as we like to think that Iowa is free of all these concerns of racism and white supremacy and misogyny and patriarchy. It is very much kind of a microcosm of all of these things that come together and keep a lot of people down and ensure that the that the power stays in the status quo, which is not good. Yeah, I think that's a really a really good point that that I, I that someone a columnist like a Liz Lens or um, th- that brings a new voice or highlights issues that aren't normally talked about can shine a light on some of that because when you see and this is these are things that sh- there are things that should be reported but I think they tinge our view of what our state looks like when you see Des Moines or Iowa is on you know the best list to uh, is on the top 10 to raise a family to do all these you know all of these things that does not mean that there aren't a lot of problems in our state and especially a lot of problems for people who who don't look like me frankly who aren't white men um, and so um, so making sure that those that that that's highlighted um, in as prominent a way as as possible so that so so that we can find solutions or as best we can find solutions is really important and i think that that adding her voice into the discussion into the general media landscape of the state is going to have is going to have really good uh only good things can come from that one of the other things i really like about her writing is how accessible it is because a lot of the things that I think people get caught up in is how academic a lot of these things sound that feel very removed from daily life. But in in one of her columns, she talks about the Electoral College and how the Electoral College's whole purpose, I'm reading a quote, was to keep power in the hands of white male landowners. 
The Electoral College was based on the three-fifths compromise, which allowed for slaves to count for three-fifths of a white man for representation in the House. They counted for representation, but still weren't allowed to vote. Had the three-fifths compromise not happened, the Electoral College would not exist. America is built on the denial of voices and the brutalization of bodies as much as it ever was on lofty ideals of freedom and justice for all. As a result, power in America is not equal. And I think that is the kind of thing that would resonate with people more than hearing someone give a very jargony speech. And I mean, maybe maybe that is jargony. And just because I enjoy reading about this, that it doesn't feel jargony. But I think also with all of the debate around keeping the Electoral College and being uh do it doing a popular vote knowing where we get these structures from and figuring and interrogating whether or not there's they still work for us and whether or not they're worth keeping and i think also i was reading something the other day about how just because we had these just because the founding fathers talked about these principles doesn't mean they necessarily lived by them does not necessarily mean that the structures they created were made for them and also not letting our society be ruled by ghosts and having to keep this tradition when our society is continuing to move forward and have better options and more inclusive options for people and making sure that everything works for everyone. Yeah, well, I would say if a tradition includes counting one human being as three-fifths of a person, uh, that's a tradition worth throwing out. Yes. Um, so, I I mean, I think you're, I think you're exactly right about not having it be too jargony. I think we, when I say we, I mean the left, progressives, and we, you and I talk about this a lot in the work that we do. Uh, and the messaging that, and the information that we put out where it's the idea that we, we fall into the trap that if we just put out a fact or a statistic, then that should tell the whole story and people should get it. But we have to explain why and we have to give a reason what is go- what of where we came from and what the argument is what the argument is that we're making and not leave that up to somebody's own mind to interpret for itself. So if we want to talk about how a popular vote should be how we determine who our leadership is, it's helpful as Liz Lenz has in this piece to lay out why, you know, and the history of, of how we how we determine the Electoral College and how we determine representation in our country. She also describes uh, Labor Day as a, quote, angry holiday. Now, we're trying to make it a positive one, and and a quick update on that. We have 75 now. We're up to 75 businesses, uh, elected officials, organizations, and labor unions who have signed on to make September Labor Union Appreciation Month. So if you haven't yet, go to thankaunion.com and learn more about our efforts there. Um, but Liz Lenz describes Labor Day as an angry holiday. We're trying to recognize it as uh, as something that where we should thank labor unions and appreciate the work that they have done. What, what's your take on how she described that? 
I don't think that angry and positive are necessarily mutually exclusive. Oh, that's true. And you can be angry and work toward positive change, which we've seen in the past couple of years, which we've seen throughout history, where angry people band together and make a stand against people or institutions that are keeping them down. Like she talks about the Pullman strike that happened in Chicago in 1894, which when the Pullman company used its power to lower wages without lowering the rent of the company town. And then when the workers complained, the owner of the company, George Pullman, had them fired. And then it was during this strike that President Grover Cleveland signed into law the federal holiday that became, that is Labor Day. And I think the the way that Labor Day has become where it feels just kind of like, oh, you get an extra day at the end of your summer. You go, we used this example a week ago that you get to go drink White Claws on the beach. Mm-hmm. And I think we are missing the blood, sweat and tears and anger that created this holiday that was originally only signed into law because it was meant to be kind of like a dousing of cold water on all of these angry people who were striking and wanted better wages, better work environments, better benefits so that they could, you know, continue to live and work in jobs that helped them build good lives. And I think the whitewashing or, uh, sort of the smoothing of those edges has been to our detriment because we fall into this trap of respectability politics where we think, oh, this is the this is the way you do this. You do this like slow and steady and you don't get angry and you don't upset the man and you don't upset the powers that be and you just kind of work quietly and behind the scenes. Whereas, I mean, people who were in the labor movement rioted, had strikes, and did everything they could to put their lives on the line for their fellow workers and bind together to create a better tomorrow for future workers. And I think that we are doing ourselves a disservice to think that that positive change came through small positive acts, when in reality, it was a lot of anger and and action and I mean I don't condone violence but it was a violent movement on both sides sometimes yeah and I think that's a point well taken that anger and positivity do not have to be mutually exclusive especially and I do want to push back to that I mean even though I, I think that's right I do think though that it does take time and I think we've seen that over. I'm not saying it doesn't no, 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 I know, I know. I just want to make sure, like, because, like, we, I mean, we talked about this last week with the labor. You know, that was our one of our um, one of our points that that these rights that we fought for it not only takes time, but like, but it it is a, I mean, that doesn't, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't reach for everything that we want and then you know keep pushing, but I mean, um. But it, it, it does take time and, and it's sometimes and many times two steps forward, one step back or more steps back and then forward um, as we like we've seen here in Iowa where we've got, you know, 
uh, especially as far as labor goes, um, have seen rights pulled back. We've seen defunding of Planned Parenthood and clinics close, and then we we have to hope and organize and push and get angry and 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 keep working toward you know fixing those situations or fixing those problems. Um, but I. I, I think the point I was trying to make was more that, like, we didn't get these rights by asking nicely. Absolutely. Yeah. So basically what we're saying is, Liz Lenz, we love your writing. Continue doing awesome, great work. And if you'd like, we'd love to have you on our show sometime to discuss this more. What a Week is produced by Progress Iowa as part of the Potluck Media Network and would not be possible without grassroots supporters like you. For more information, visit potluck.fm or find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave us a five-star review and subscribe. See you next week on What a Week.